This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Kirsty Melville here with you and welcome to the History Listen, where today we're taking a journey back to the mean streets of 1920s Brisbane with feisty private detective Mrs Kate Condon. Although Mrs Condon makes regular appearances in court records and local newspapers, biographical information about her is sketchy and often contradictory. But with a lot of imagination and a little bit of dramatic licence, writer Noelle Janicheska introduces us to the life and casebook of Mrs Kate Condon. Historians Alana Piper and Alicia Simmons provide historical background. So sit back and come with us into the shady world of early 20th century Brisbane with Mrs C, private detective. The case of Catherine Condon against Aubrey Bennett for assault was called in the central summons court. Catherine Condon stated that one night the previous week, she had occasion to go to the Oyster Saloon where her son-in-law worked. As she was leaving, the defendant jumped up. Take that, he said, and hit the witness in the face, knocking her onto the floor. Her son-in-law and another waiter helped her up. January 1914. Outside, scattered rain. Inside, the usual strut and stuff of court. Witness could not conceive any reason why Bennett struck her. Far as I know, that was the first time I got my name in the newspaper. Let's be clear from the outset. This is my story and my telling of it, with hindsight and a dash of dramatic licence. Officially, I'm Catherine with a K, or a C, take your pick. Occasionally Kathleen, but mostly I'm Kate. Wife of James, mother of multiple kids. Private detective. Fortune telling. Police take action. Clairvoyant crooks. Fortune teller fleeces females. Methods exposed. Sidelights on the ways of fortune tellers were provided in the city summons court. In Brisbane, we find them the butt of a sheaf of prosecution. The complaint heard yesterday was that of Detective Senior Sergeant Power against Francis Pereira, an Indian who described himself as a psychic and mental delineator. A sorcerer named J.J. Maxwell. One William Wood, alias Mantagaza. The marvellous Howards. Madame St. Auburn. Madame St. Auburn. Was charged that on 2nd July 1917, she imposed on Elsie May Pearl Paraskis and Kate Condon, two married women engaged as police agents, by pretending that she had power and ability to foretell future events. The defendant informed one of the women, who happened to be a grandmother, that she would meet a man from foreign parts who was very rich. That's me, the grandmother. Elsie, pearly we call her, is my daughter. 
Fortune telling had always been practised in Australia in different forms, um, both before colonisation and afterwards. And during the early 20th century, though, the popularity of fortune-telling definitely increased. There are daily advertisements for fortune-telling activity, and yet it's something that is technically illegal. When the case against Joseph Bostock resumed, Kate Condon was sworn in. Cross-examined, the witness said that she was wearing a black dress with rouge on her cheeks. Weren't you doled up as much as possible to try and deceive the defendant? No, I wasn't. Bloody cheek. There was an absolute explosion of fortune-telling prosecutions in the First World War in Australia. It's a period of great uncertainty. A lot of people are missing their loved ones overseas. Communication is hard with those places and this creates a demand for fortune-telling services and also a lot of unease in the community. There was concern that soldiers' widows, uh, soldiers' mothers are being ripped off and so as a result of that, the Prime Minister's office itself gets involved and says we need to crack down on fortune-tellers. Queensland Police, Criminal Investigation Branch. I have been able to obtain the services of a married woman who, with her daughter, is prepared to give her services at a charge of 10 shillings per day each and expenses of 2 shillings and sixpence per day for meals and tram fares. I am satisfied that they will appear and give evidence when required. Detective Senior Sergeant Thomas Power. Fortune-telling was very much associated with women, both in terms of who was seen to be practitioners of fortune-telling and also who were seen to be the main clients. And this was part of what was used to sort of put it down. It was, you know, derided as a foolish superstition of weak-minded women. When you actually look at who was practising fortune-telling and also the sorts of questions that they were being asked, the picture gets a bit more complicated. Actually, a lot of the evidence is that this is perhaps an important space for women to go to be talking about the problems in their lives, unhappy marriages, things that are causing them concern. Sideshow men, second sighters, readers of teacups and palms, Ouija boarding, card cutting, show me your hand. <laughs> People will believe anything if you trick it up with fancy words and a bit of sparkle. The police employed me again a couple of years later. The first prosecution of its kind for a long time in Brisbane was set down for hearing when Arthur S. Foote was charged with having unlawfully practised as a doctor. Masquerading as a medico. Mrs. Kate Condon deposed that she went to Foote's place at New Farm. In I go, acting meek and shaky as curd. Told him I was suffering from... A woman's complaint? Defendant said that she would have to undergo a course of his massage treatment. If she did not, she would be a raving lunatic before a month slipped by. On a subsequent visit, defendant asked witness to let him put the battery on her. Uh-uh, no way. 
Wednesday last in the divorce court, the petitioner said he secured the services of Mrs Condon, who assisted him in his search for proof regarding his wife's unfaithfulness. Catherine Condon, who gave her evidence in fine style, clear, concise and to the point, unravelled a very sordid story of life in the underworld of Brisbane. April 1922. It's not that I appear in court a lot, although I do, I suppose. It's that most of the information about me is in reports of court proceedings. August 1923. Silvano is a famous juggler, a prestidigitator. Behind the scenes, he managed to juggle the defendant and her furniture away from her husband. That was the substance of the case when the plaintiff sought dissolution of his marriage on the grounds of his wife's misconduct with the hey-presto gentleman. Slippery bugger, Silvano. Larger than life, like a film character. Private eyes in books solve murder mysteries. Private investigators like me on the mean streets of Brisbane deal with shoplifters, small-time fraudsters and cheating spouses. Divorce work is my bread and butter. Love on the brink of hatred lies hidden in plain sight. Look, by the time someone is suspicious enough to hire a private investigator, it's all but a foregone conclusion. If they suspect an affair, they're usually right. If. (laughs) Such a small word. Such big consequences. Lady Detective flashes the torchlight on a pair of sleeping beauties. Sometimes you stake out and there's nothing to see. Just the moon in a halo of ragged light. But not this time. This time. Mrs C got an eyeful of the errant husband diving into the sportsman's arms. By and by, out he shambled and zigzagged along to a place next door to a Chinese establishment. Then came a long and weary vigil, which lasted till the clocks were striking twelve. It's low glamour stuff, but I knew that going in. Keeping watch on a doorway for hours at a stretch, sipping tea piled with sugar, waiting, waiting. (sighs) Waiting. When it rains five days in the skies, Mrs. Catherine Condon observed the co-defendant's shop. She got to know defendant through pretending she had an accident to her undies and borrowed a safety pin. They conversed and she secured an entry to the co-defendant's place. When questioned, Mrs. Condon said she took up the detective business because she liked it. Yep, said that. She'd been married 30 years. Her husband had been coachman to the mayor of Melbourne and was now a dealer. They came to Queensland to go into cotton farming and stayed three years at Boona. 
Witness had done detective work in Sydney in 1893 or 94. Correct. May 1893. Cook's Private Detective Offices, King Street, Sydney. 20 male and female detectives to follow anyone you wish. Divorce, missing friends, next of kin. Was it Mr Cook who employed me back then? Maybe, definitely, could be. Back in the witness box, November 1923. Mrs Condon said she lived in New Zealand with her husband when they were in the gem industry. She admitted telling the defendant untruths to obtain information. Necessary untruths goes with the job. Sometimes you need a bit of elastic with your facts. But I'll come clean about this. We've been a couple a long time, me and James, but we didn't make it official until 1912. <laughs> so here we are, Riverside. A loading pier, steps submerged in muck and sludge, smell of pineapple and molasses. Another war marriage ended in the divorce court when a young English girl, Rose Walters, applied for a dissolution of her marriage. Mrs Catherine Condon said she located Mr Walters, husband of the petitioner, on the government dredge berthed at South Brisbane. I followed him for several nights. I saw him enter a boarding house in company with a woman we knew as Myrtle Edwards. Through the window, we observed them playing cards. Walters later on began to undress. Then the light went out. His Honour found the misconduct proved. Well, I think there are two elements to this question about the status of divorce in the period from the First World War to the 1930s. The first is legal and the second is cultural or, or social. So to just give you a potted history, it is basically impossible to get a divorce until 1857 in England. And I would also say in, in uh, Australia, although there are discrepancies in Australia because convicts would often divorce each other through putting an ad in the paper um, saying, I'm no longer responsible for this person's debt. We have um, separated by mutual consent. You can get a divorce on shirt buttons these days, but back then... The first changes are in 1857 with the Matrimonial Causes Act that changes the jurisdiction of divorce from the ecclesiastic courts to the civil courts. But it carries on uh, the misogyny, basically, that, that underpinned divorce, which is uh, what is referred to as the, the double standard. A man can get a divorce if he proves adultery. A woman has to prove adultery plus something else. Eventually, in 1892, the Victorian and the New South Wales governments successfully argue for what's called the Divorce Amendment and Extension Bill. They get rid of the double standard and they expand the grounds uh, upon which you can get a divorce. And this results in the 1890s in, in what's known as the divorce boom. <laughs> There's another spike in divorce cases immediately after World War I. The main grounds 
for obtaining a divorce were desertion. Desertion was the main one and adultery. So they're the two biggies. And then after that, you have, there's cruelty, which is different to assault, drunkenness, there was incestuous adultery, there was rape, sodomy, um, bestiality, there was insanity. Private Ds like myself were viewed with suspicion more often than not. Dodgy types operating in the legal shadows. What was it one reporter called us? A torchlight brigade haunting the state's divorce court. A torchlight brigade haunting the state's divorce court? The required evidence for divorce is going to depend upon what you're suing for. For adultery, you're going to need a lot of evidence and, and test a witness testimony. You're definitely going to need a private detective. Private detectives become um, commonly used. You want to you want to catch someone in the act. Proceedings in the Supreme Court were marked by sharp exchanges. Judges are very sceptical um, of them. They see them as amateurish and they don't like the idea of them bursting into the private sphere for money. There was one particular firm in Sydney where people would have started to almost lose their cases if they hired them because they were seen as corrupt. Euphemistically referred to as a lady, the jury would quickly come to the conclusion that Kate Condon was a witness who was just as willing to tell a lie as tell the truth. The judge said. He did not think the jury would pay much attention to evidence of hers that was uncorroborated. La-di-da lawyers with their high collars and square backs. The suggestion, no, I did not. I didn't go to the respondent begging for sewing work. I'm an independent woman with a bank balance. Personal and Missing Friends. Advertisements under this heading. Kay Condon, Private Lady Detective, Juliet Street, off Logan Road, South Brisbane. Bills to pay, mouths to feed, turn a hand as needs must. Strange to say, there is a woman detective. Actually, there are quite a few of us lady sleuths. A neat little thing known as Mrs. Kate Condon. A cross-examiner once asked her, did you follow the man all the way? I did. But he climbed over four fences in his flight. So did I. How on earth do you manage that? It's quite easy for me. I'll show you sometime if you're interested. I might have known it. Uh, known what? That you were a detective the minute you stepped on my feet. Name me Moran, my secretary. Sure. Secretary. He ain't got anything to do, and I see to it that he don't forget anything. There she is. The wise cracking secretary. Spectacles obligatory. Mentally registering the fact that in the art of seeing without being seen, Miss Marple had no rival. I balanced my find on the palings between us. That's the one, said Miss Marple. I'd know it anywhere. There she is, the spinster sleuth. That's fiction for you. My life isn't such a well-made thing. Having ten kids doesn't leave much time for scones and sponge cake at the vicarage. I developed a talent for blending in. Most people never suspect they're being followed, least of all by a female. Who looks twice at Mrs Anonymous sitting on a park bench? Say private eye and everyone thinks trench coat, bottle of whiskey in the bottom drawer. 
Nobody expects a five-foot-something middle-aged brunette in a sensible skirt. Still, some assignments are trickier than others. Required to appear. Tuesday, 9th of March, 1926. I'm waiting at the court in George Street. Corridors of civic splendour. And I don't have a clue how this case will come to bedevil me. George Walker petitioned for the dissolution of his marriage with Ellen Rosalie Walker on the grounds of her alleged misconduct with a labourer from the sugar refinery. Catherine Condon gave evidence of being engaged to keep an eye on Mrs Walker. She said she saw the defendant, with a man, go into the front room of a house in New Farm. I put it to you that you are mistaken as to the identity of the co-defendant. No, I'm not. (laughs) She's in court accused of adultery. The judge and barristers are not amused. Their deliberations fill columns of newsprint reporters with their grubby edges writing it all down. After giving testimony, we gather outside. The sky was clear. Well, that's how I remember it. There may have been clouds. Crown intervenes. Grave miscarriage of justice. Eight months later, George Walker has at last succeeded in his application to the divorce court to be rid of his wife. The case has served once again to demonstrate the unreliability of the evidence of paid inquiry agents. I admit now I made a mistake, but I was right about everything else. Moving on. April 1928. In the Supreme Court this morning, counsel for the defendant resumed his cross-examination of Catherine Condon. How old are you? About 50. Never mind about. How old are you? About 50-odd. Mrs C denied that she ever took her 14-year-old granddaughter with her when she was doing inquiry work. In the Walker lawsuit, an innocent man was found guilty on your evidence. And the evidence of others, yes. It's my one serious mistake in 30 years. What other form of inquiry work have you done? Mrs Condon said that she's been employed by many of Brisbane's big drapery firms to catch shoplifters. True. Also true is that I like to be, shall we say, vague about my personal details. Even in court. A questionable choice, perhaps, but it doesn't keep me awake at night. Let's go right back to the beginning. Scrutinise the records. I was born in Albury. Maiden name, Skur. My mother was Hannah and my father was a clergyman. My husband James comes from Tipperary in Ireland. He's ten years my senior. I was young when we had our first child. How young? That's for me to know and no one else's concern. What you do need to know about me is that I'm street smart and I apologise to no one. If I'm an unreliable witness to my own life, so what? Aren't we all in our different ways? (laughs) 
Official documents fill in some biographical gaps. Other gaps remain. Sure, my exploits grab headlines. What do you expect? Being a female in the private detective business is bloody hard. November 1930. No big drapery firm ever has a sale without engaging the service of a female detective and Mrs Kate Condon is the one most sought after to catch the petty thieves. This little lady could tell a lot of things. That's the last time my name's in the newspapers. Well, not quite. There's the sale of my house six years later and my death in 1957. But let's leave it here. There's a somebody I'm longing to see I hope that he turns out to be Someone who'll watch over me Mrs C, Private Detective, featured the voices of Jeanette Cronin, Johnny Nasser and Thomas Campbell. You also heard from historians Dr Alana Piper and Dr Alicia Simmons. Mrs C was written by Noel Janicheska and produced by Ros Blewett. The sound design was by Isabella Tropiano. I'm Kirsty Melville. Thanks for your company. I'll catch you next time here on The History Listen. Bye for now. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.